here at the feast, able to visit and fellowship a great deal, and it's wonderful to be out here in this natural setting, whether it be truly a historically important setting or just a beautiful setting, it, it works. I don't know whether I mentioned it or not, I, I did to two or three people, but there are trees uh, just above us here, but the road gets kind of rough. It would have been nice to have camped up in the trees, but um, sometimes you get cedar gnats there, so we might be better off here anyway. I don't know whether there are any around this time of year or not up there. But uh, you could all get here by car, no matter what type of car, pretty easily. So that was one reason that we got here. Uh, this afternoon, uh, I would, I, I think uh, Kirby is taking some of the boys out and uh, doing a little sighting in of guns and some target practice and so on. Uh, so those who are involved, I'm sure, already know about that. But uh, I'll mention it in case someone wanted to be that isn't. Um, also, after lunch, uh, I don't know what time that'll be, depends on when the preacher shuts up, but um, we'll take time to change and have some lunch, and then maybe, let's see, it's 11, 12, I should be done by around 12.30, let's say 1.30, uh, anyone who wants to go up and, and hear some explanation of some of the, the sites up here, uh, I'll give a guided tour. I want to take us up to the eye, the veil of the temple. These are geological features. Uh, the Eam are the twins of Mother Israel, and uh, possibly the Parawan if we have time today and, and go over some of those petroglyphs and their meaning. So uh, let's gather out here all kind of toward the end of the tent, out by the road maybe at, uh, at 1.30. Uh, you can, unless we go to Parowan, uh, you could ride four-wheelers for this first part. We could come back here uh, if we want to get in cars and then go on up there. So that, that could work out very well. This isn't a very long trip up here uh, and not take too long to explain it. But there's some very interesting things to see. And this evening, uh, we planned the Dutch oven cook and and of course barbecue as well, steaks or whatever, and uh, game night. So I think we should probably start maybe cooking 5, 5.30, somewhere right in there, because it seems that if we set an hour, then it takes 30 minutes to get organized, and then there's more time to get it cooked, and, and then it gets later and later. So if we want to eat and then have games as well, we better start uh, maybe 5-ish would be good. Anybody got a, an objection or a better time than that or a reason why it should be later or sun goes down a little after 7, starts getting cooler? I know you boys want dinner at 3, but we're not going there. So that's what's on the schedule for this afternoon and evening. And as a preview, tomorrow uh, we'll have some afternoon games organized in the Pinewood Derby. Well, everybody get your engines racing. The Pinewood Derby is upon us. Now, I set the stage a bit yesterday in terms of uh, what Satan is and what his motives are and what he's trying to do in destroying mankind. We know that God put us here to become part of his family, and Satan failed in his quest to become the ruler of the universe,
and he is also missing out on being in the presence of God and being a part of God's family, which would be an, would have been an upgrade over his angelic status because we are made for only a little while lower than the angels, but we will be raised above them, as Hebrews says. So he's missing out on that, and he does not want us added to the family of God. That is his biggest uh, goal and quest and purpose, is to keep us from being a part of the kingdom of God. So I took about an hour and a half, as somebody put it yesterday, to tell us Satan is bad. <laughs> I could have said that, and we could have gone and played sooner, but uh, maybe we wouldn't have gotten quite as much impact from just a simple statement like that. At any rate, uh, we are faced with a very formidable task in trying to unwind and rectify history and to understand true history. It is a very, very difficult thing because it has been altered. Now, many, many people, just from the Bible account, are also trying to piece together prophecy and what will happen. And you can go from one end of the Bible to the other and through all the prophecies and have all kinds of theories about when this will happen and when that will happen and did this happen and is it all done or does it happen again. And it can be a very, very confusing thing, even in the Bible. And the Bible also does not have all detail about everything that has happened since Adam and Eve was created. Some whole sections of history are covered in only verses, except that unless they have to do with Israel, and then God spends more time on it. But even some of the history of Israel is very sketchy. So it's difficult but I will say this, I do believe God, in his providence and mercy and love, has given us enough in the Bible that we can piece together the things that could be important to us. See, it doesn't matter if we have all the details. A lot of people study history just because they like the intellectual exercise. It's place, you know, whatever. Uh, to them, it is mental exercise, and pride and vanity can also be involved in thinking they know everything about everything. But people really get into history, or some really get into prophecy, some really get into, you know, computer games. People are different. But the average American, I think, pretty well knows that Columbus discovered America in 1492. They also know where in town most of the McDonald's are. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, if you've ever watched over the years Jay Leno go out and do these interviews on the street, you'll find that Americans are blithering idiots when it comes to knowing about history, about even America, about our government, about our leaders, about anything he wants to ask them on the street. Uh, most of them don't have a clue, whatever the question might be, uh, over a whole gamut of different subjects. Uh, Europeans, by contrast, get much more world news. Uh, they have traditionally, at least, been better educated. Most Europeans speak three or four languages, if not more. Americans barely speak English, and texting is helping ruin even that. We can't spell, we can't do anything, it seems. So we are, to put it bluntly, 
a semi-literate nation. We can hardly read. We can barely spell, if we can spell at all. Uh, and we know very little about things except what we might have learned in history class in school. And we forgot most of that. So, and it was a distorted view in the first place. So, here we sit today, approaching world history and the, the truth of the matter, and trying to sort it out, and our background does not give us a great deal of help in this, okay? Uh, so we have to put our mind to it, and I think God has made things, when you put the story together, clear enough that we can understand it, and I don't mean to be putting us down, I'm just saying this is the way it is in America today. Uh, true history tells the story of true religion. Now, God, uh, Satan has deceived the world, as we saw yesterday, with terrible religion, with everything ungodly, and all religions around the world share very much in common. They may have different languages, they may have a little different approach, but nearly all religions around the world believe in some form of the immortality of the soul. They believe in some form of heaven, or nirvana, or whatever they might call it, or some type of afterlife. Uh, most believe in reincarnation, though mainstream Protestant doesn't, ism doesn't. Uh, the Mormons do. Most religions do. So, uh, we are faced with this situation around the world where Satan is deceived on religion, but in so doing, he had to deceive history and to rewrite it, because had he not, it would be easier, far easier, to ferret out the truth of religion as well. But we have to sort through what is pagan and what is of God, and use, his, use the Word of God as, as the final answer on that. But we look at Satan and his motives. Let me make a, a brief comment about history as it is written, that we might read in books in school or whatever. Uh, you may have read sometime in school, I think I heard it, that they had a burning of some of the major libraries on the face of the earth, way back in the early hundreds. One of the greatest libraries on earth, apparently, was the one at Alexandria, Egypt. It was burned with all the volumes and all the true history that might have been recorded there. Uh, the Catholic Church, and I, I read about this in school books as well, had a major book burning wherever Catholicism was and burned every book that had anything to do with religion or true history that they could find. And bear in mind that in those days they didn't have radio or television. I know you find that hard to believe, but it wasn't there. They didn't have the printing press until, what, 1400-something, I guess, with Gutenberg. Uh, so everything, every book had to be handwritten. So there were not very many books around. And not only that, as a result of that, there were very, very few people could even read a book if they did run across one. They weren't taught to read as children or as adults. So you had a world then that was essentially illiterate. 
And if you burned all the books that were there of historical value, uh, there wasn't much left. Then you could rewrite it however you wanted it. And there were people, inspired by Satan, of course, uh, who wanted a view of history according to their view. And a lot of that is what has come down to us today. So we want to go through this and see if we can unwind it. I, I will say at the very beginning of this series about the Promised Land, Jerusalem, and Zion, and, and other issues that we may come across, that I don't understand everything yet by any means. We've pieced together some things. The Bible makes some very clear statements, and we have to go by those. If God said it, then I can believe it. If an archaeologist said it, I need to find out if he was biased one direction or another. If a historian said it, I need to know what his race was, what his background was, uh, what his biases are, because he's, he's going to write things according to the way he wants them to be. So we have to be very, very careful. When you deal with the information sent down by men, you're dealing with a den of snakes who have their own agendas. Thankfully, we have the Word of God, and that is the primary uh, reference that we will use. It is the final word, if there is a question, in other words, uh, because I think everyone here trusts the Bible. Uh, if we have that in common, then we have a great deal to begin with to build upon, to try to figure out a lot of these things. Now, as I said before, I think it is very important, if we are the people of God, to know where the true promised land is, was and is, and will be. We need to know where Israel is. We need to know where Jerusalem and Zion are. Some of those questions perhaps did not really come up uh, much, but uh, I think they are very much on the table based upon a lot of things that I've seen in the Scriptures. So we want to get into that and uh, try to understand as much as we can. All right. Some of the topics that we set forth and some of you did some work on were Zion, uh, information about it being a place of refuge, a physical description from Scripture, and how does the Bible define the true Zion? And then we compare what we have heard or known in the past or read to that. Same with Jerusalem, uh, the various prophecies about it, the rebuilding, uh, the physical, the spiritual, the land form. How did the places in the Middle East get their names? Uh, what about animals moving back and forth? Uh, some, the Bible mentions, are in the Promised Land. Uh, archaeological findings, uh, positive or negative. Prophecies about Jerusalem, statements about Jerusalem, and the Bible definition of the promised land. I think that is where I will begin, because uh, if we can see what God says in his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to others, then we compare what we see today to what God has said and what we find must fit God's definition. 
That's the baseline from which we can approach uh, these subjects. As I said, they, it's a, they're huge subjects. There's an awful lot about it. So what about peoples, uh, people movements, what God promised to whom, uh, and then the prophecies about what must be done in the end and how we might, as God's people, fit in among those. So uh, we have a lot of material to cover, and I will not begin to kid myself that I can cover it all during the feast, uh, but we'll get a good start, I think. So maybe the best place to start uh, would not be uh, in Genesis or even uh, with Noah and all that, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the, the races particularly, but if we're going to approach the promised land first, we need to examine uh, what God has said about it and then go from there. Uh, a lot of these other things are very important, but we already know where Israel. We already know uh, quite a few things from our history and worldwide Church of God. So I think the promised land would be important because as Israel and as a church, spiritual Israel, we need to understand who those peoples are, what God said about them, where they would be, and what they would be doing, and what would be their geography, what would be their blessings, what would be everything about them that we might use to look around and say, where does that fit? It has to fit the Bible. All right, let's go to... Genesis. I think I'll just... Uh, some of these things I have not completely organized in a, a you know, totally logical sequence, but some of you wrote down some things on the website that we studied. I wrote some down, and uh, rather than go through and snip and clip everything and try to arrange it in that order, I'm going to be a little more scattershot about it, but we'll get to them. Uh, because you have things written on your paper and I have things written on my paper, so we'll kind of go back and forth and try to cover it all. Uh, Genesis 17, let's begin in verse 1 here. And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Eternal appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be you perfect or my margin says upright or sincere, or it can also be interpreted perhaps mature. Uh, he was not telling him to be perfect in the sense that we think of perfect, because no human has attained to perfection other than Christ, and had he been using that word in that sense advisedly, Abraham was shot down before he ever got started. And we found, find later that and earlier that he had lied and so on and done various things that were contrary to God. But essentially he led an upright and a righteous life. So he was fulfilling what God had said there. Uh, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. So he's had got a covenant here of having many, many children, grandchildren, and so on down through history, as we'll see. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. This did happen at times in the past. Uh, there are things about 
the end times that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob said and made prophecies about their progeny of what would happen to them in the last days. Well, how did they know? Well, God talked with some of those men. Uh, recall the scene there where Abraham was sitting in the shade in the heat of the day and uh, on the plains of Mamre, and, and Christ and the angels came to visit him. And he killed a fatted calf and so on, and they talked. I suspect they sat there and chewed on a straw and talked about the weather and, you know, well, I can't know. I suspect that was a very, very heavily, uh, or time heavily filled with instruction, with guidance, with what would be. Uh, in other words, it was a very, very important business meeting about the things of God. I don't think Christ came there just to dilly-dally and sit back and relax and, you know, socialize. He probably had some very important things on his mind to import, impart to Abraham. Uh, so he said, My covenant will be with you. Neither shall your name any more be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made you. So he would be not the father of one nation, but many, and we know that through the line of Isaac and Jacob came Joseph and the twelve sons, and uh, the line of Israel started there. Through Hagar came Ishmael, twelve great nations as well, that came from Abraham. So uh, the, the, the line of promise, we'll see, went through uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph particularly, uh, and other blessings came to Ishmael. And kings shall come out of you. So you're not going to be a podunk shepherd kingdom, but you're going to be in a world-ruling situation. Kings will come from you. Those are things that are important to remember when we start uh, considering where Israel, where the promised land is of today. It will not be anything small. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. So this wasn't just a deal he cut with Abraham. This was something that he explains very clearly was to be everlasting. It would always be. So as the generations came down, all these promises would ultimately be used and fulfilled in the seed of Abraham. Um, verse 8, And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, that doesn't mean that they were always there, as we find in other scriptures. It was to be theirs forevermore as their possession, but we find in Deuteronomy 28 and other places that there were times when Israel sinned and were taken into captivity. They were taken off their land. In fact, uh, when they went down into Mitzrayim because of the famine, they became slaves there, and they weren't in their land, but they were taken back to their land. 
and later on he says, if you keep sinning, uh, I'll take you into slavery by ship. And he did. And I don't think he, Israel was in its own land for some time. Those were aberrations. They did not break the covenant with Israel that God had made or with Abraham. They were temporary things, and Israel always came back. And in prophecy, we see again that Israel is going to go into a great captivity, 90% of its people killed, and be scattered all over the earth. And then at the beginning of the millennium, Christ is going to gather them again to their own land. So it's never been, in that sense, taken away. They have just been temporarily removed for it, from it because they weren't keeping the covenant. But after being slapped around, God always brings them back. That's the way he's worked this thing. So, in the end, Israel will be in its own land. We'll see that as we go on. I guess I shouldn't get ahead of the story, but wait till we get there uh, to read those things as we come. So, the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites were, would become the everlasting possession of Israel. Some questions come up. Where was the land of Canaan? Uh, we'll get to that. Who were the people of Canaan? All right, let's go to Genesis 15, uh, verse 5. Speaking to Abram again. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if you be able to number them. I've sat out and tried to count the stars at night. I did used to as a kid, and I, I got totally confused. You, you can't do that. I, I've read since there's only about, what, 2,000 visible to the naked eye, but I couldn't count that many. But the stars of heaven, as we know from astronomy today, and even as they understood back then, uh, or infinite in number. If you be able to number them, he said to him, so shall your seed be. Now I take from that that Abraham was to have millions and millions, hundreds of millions, if not billions of seed. Now how do I come up with those numbers? Because when we look at history, uh, they count the generations and make some ballpark estimates of maybe 60 billion people have lived. And we look at the earth today, and there's nearly 7 billion. So Israel was to be a major factor in the numbers of people on earth. So if he tells Abraham, you're going to be many like this, it has to be a large number. Now, some historians and scholars will tell you today that the ten lost tribes are lost and nobody knows where they are. That, uh, well, how could they be many in number like the stars of the heavens and not be able to be found? You know, if it was 600 Bedouins out somewhere in southeast Libya, maybe so, but uh, that isn't the numbers God is talking about here. God is talking about Israel as being a major player, major numbers of peoples. So it has to fit that. 
And he believed in the eternal, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham was childless, as it says here, the first part of this chapter. And we all know that story, so I will not go back there and rehearse it all about how he and Sarah had children, or a child, after their capacity to have children was gone. And then after she died, he had another uh, wife and wives and had lots more children. So Abraham believed it, even though he had no children. And it happened. Well, we've, we must be able to find those people today. Uh, Genesis 22, I won't get all of these, but I want to, to cover enough of them to give us a, an overall feeling. And we've gone to them before uh, with different subjects, but let's examine the covenant and the promises that were made originally. And then everything else has to fit on this. Chapter 22, verse 15. And the angel of the Eternal called Abraham out of heaven the second time, and he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Eternal, for because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, <laughs> referring to the sacrifice of Isaac that was attempted but was not accomplished, because you were willing to give your son, that in blessing... I will bless you, and in multiplying, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Now, I used to try to count the stars, and maybe you'd say, well, he was only supposed to have 2,000 since that's all he could see when he tried to count them. But God adds the dimension here and says that your seed will be like the sand on the seashore. I did vainly try to count the stars, but I never did try to count all the grains of sands on the seashore. I don't think I could have gotten them all counted on my foot, much less what was on the seashore. So, lots and lots of people, okay? And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemy. That's mentioned, I think, more than once, that Israel would possess the gates of the world, the geopolitical gates, uh, whereby trade passes and whereby people are made rich if they control where trade goes, how much goes, who is able to send it and who is not able to send it. And as we have heard within the church over the years, uh, you know, there was Israel controlled uh, Gibraltar and Suez, the Cape of Good Hope, uh, when it was finally dug, the Panama Canal and so on and so forth around the world, the gates have been controlled essentially by Israel. That's going away now because the blessings are stopping and the cursings are starting. But it was that way between Britain and the United States. So that's a very important key right there. Uh, that in the end time, when you start to look for Israel you'd better start looking for lots of people that have controlled the waterways and the travel gates. Does Israel and the Middle East, which is designated by most as the promised land, control the gates of the world? Would somebody name one gate of the world that they control? Didn't think so. 
even Suez, which is nearby, was controlled by Israel. I mean, the true Israel, Britain, the United States. We recently turned it over more to Egypt, and uh, I guess mostly Egypt. And we gave the Panama Canal to the Russians. <laughs> no, the Chinese, I guess it was, sorry. Gave it away anyway. But we've controlled these things. That land over there, there's a, a real good first point. The world thinks that that includes all of Israel. They, they, don't, they don't grasp that there's 12, 13 tribes in Israel. The Jews are only one of those. So they look upon that land they call Israel, and that expands it way beyond. They, if they're going to call it anything, they should have called it Judah, or Palestinian, I guess, or, or Edom, but uh, they call it Israel, which should encompass all the tribes of Israel. Well, how many of the tribes are Israel, of Israel are there? Only one is recognized, and that of Judah, and the true Jews, I think, from other study, uh, even comprise only a minority of the people that are there. So there are not hundreds of millions of people there. The whole population is about 8 million, including Arabs and Jews and Edomites and whoever else might be there. Now, in comparing the size of the populations of the world, that is just a drop in the bucket. Where is all Israel? Because Israel was promised that her seed and we'll get to some other scriptures about it, in the last days would control things and would be as the sand of the sea. Now, this nation has about 330 million people. That's quite a bit bigger. That's a lot harder to count. You count up the people in Western Europe and South Africa and, and uh, New Zealand and Australia and places where Israel is gone, and you come up into the upwards of a billion or more. So uh, Israel then had to be a major population center, or one of the centers of population on earth. If that's the promised land over there, where are all those uh, descendants of Abraham that should be there? It's simply not there. I'm not at this point trying to prove this is the place. I'm trying to show that according to Scripture, that can't be the place. And we'll see a lot more added to that. It's a lot easier to prove that ain't than that this is. But when you start looking at the things God says would be at the end, it's easy to prove where Herbert Armstrong and others thought Israel is, is truly correct. But he didn't understand about the Jews either. Now, where was I here? 22, uh, 15 to 18, I wanted. So there'll be a lot of people in the end time, as we'll see in the last days, and they will possess the gates of the enemies. Now, whether it be uh, the sea passages on the southeastern side of Asia, where Britain controlled, whether it be the passages around Australia and New Zealand, uh, the end of South America, the end of Africa, uh, a lot of those people have been 
the, the enemies of Israel over the years, but here in the end time, we've controlled all those areas. Uh, the Suez Canal, through which much oil comes, very important gateway, Israel controlled. So on and on it goes. Most of the gateways, not only of our own land, but of our enemies. And in your seed, your seed down through the ages, and particularly we'll see in the end time, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. If we are going to determine which land was the land of promise to Abraham, because that's precisely what this is talking about here, we must find people that have been a blessing to the whole world, all the nations of the world. Now, we could start a list of all the things that that little country, since 1948 particularly, in the Middle East, has blessed the world. Have they helped create peace in the world? Well, no, there's constant agitation and rumor, war and rumor of war over there. There's been no peace brought. Have they, bought, have they brought prosperity to the world? Very hard to find things imported from Israel. You'll see something once in a great while. Uh, they've not been economically strong. Uh, now, when I say Israel, if that's the land that was Abraham was walking, then that has to be the, the area that has been a blessing to the world of all nations. Economically, and maybe we'll get to more of that later, but since it's on the table here in this particular scripture, Israel imports over 60% of what they consume. They do not have the things there that they could make others wealthy with. Their economy is heavily based on loans and uh, foreign aid from other nations, particularly of the United States. Their military has been basically donated by America to them. If we had not donated military hardware and software to them over the years, and had not been Big Brother standing behind them to protect them, uh, they would have been gone long, long ago. They have people who are threatening to kill them, to wipe them out to the man, woman, and child today. And the only reason that that has not happened is because we provided them with the military hardware and ability to protect themselves and stood behind them to protect them ourselves. So, how are they a blessing to the world? Have they brought great religious understanding? Who promoted Bibles and passed them out all over the world? Britain and America, not the nation of Israel. They don't believe in the Bible anyway. They believe in the Torah. So, how, they haven't blessed the world economically. They haven't blessed it or been a blessing to it militarily. They haven't been a blessing to it religiously. Can anybody, I, I, I mean, this is more Bible study form, can anybody think of any way that that land over there, 
has been a blessing to all the nations of the world? I can think of none. Oh, you're just scratching your head. Okay. I mean, let's be fair about this. This is a statement of God to Abraham about the way things would be. It certainly wasn't in his lifetime, or Isaac's, or Jacob's, or Joseph's. They went into captivity and were diminished. They were about three and a half million when they came out of Egypt, roughly speaking. That's an estimate. And then most of them died in the desert. And uh, those things weren't fulfilled back then where they would be as the sand of the sea. That was for today. So look for something like that that is a blessing to all nations. I think this subject is done. Uh, can we move on to Christian living or something? <laughs> no, there's an awful lot more. But, but you see what I mean. Just a simple statement like that just simply puts a great big X across that land over there that it hasn't in any way fulfilled any of these things that God enunciated right off the bat to Abraham. Now, that doesn't prove a lot of what I or we might be considering at the moment, but it does make a pretty good statement about that land already without even going into more. But there is a lot more, so let's, let's move on to it and through it. Uh, here's a, a little bit of a side note that it happens to be here in this particular paper that was put together. And that was the comment that Ishmael was also included in this promise. I want to quote a couple of scriptures on that as an aside, because that land over there appears to have uh, the descendants of Ishmael. Not just in Israel proper, although there may be quite a few there, but in that whole uh, Arabic world, uh, I believe, are essentially the Ishmaelites. They may be scattered here and there somewhat. But he said they would also become twelve great nations. And they would also have to have blessing, as we'll see as we read this. Genesis 16.10 And the angel of the eternal said to her, to Hagar, I will multiply your seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. So Ishmael was also to become uh, a quite, quite a large and powerful body of people. And the angel of the eternal said to her, Behold, you are a child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the eternal has had your affliction. Genesis 17 and verse 20. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve, twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. Genesis 21:13. And also the son of the bondwoman, Hagar, will I make a nation, because he is your seed. Um, I have some more on that, I think a little later on. But just a comment there, that, that Ishmael through Hagar would also be a nation, and uh, somewhere here I have scripture that we'll probably come to that shows that Ishmael being the firstborn had to have a great inheritance, uh, not just Isaac, Jacob, and, and so on, Ishmael as well, 
and that God would fulfill that promise to Ishmael. And just as a, a thumbnail sketch, if you look at the Arabs today, he did not say that he would necessarily give them verdant, productive, wonderful land. But they are very, very wealthy. Some of the wealthiest people on earth are in the Arab world. Some of the finest cities and the tallest towers and so on are built with oil money in the Arabic world. So, uh, I bring a great deal into that. Uh, let's understand that God did expand the blessings beyond just uh, Isaac and Jacob, but also to Hagar's children. Uh, let's see. Exodus 6, 2 through 4. <clears throat> Exodus 6, 2 through 4. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Eternal. And I appeared unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name... Uh, I was just reading from this being printed out. It doesn't... Uh, something was not here. But by my name to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. So here's a carryover from what was said to Abraham. Uh, God said, I'm keeping those promises. Told Moses that. Your people will go into the land of Canaan. They will go into what was the original promised land. Now, let's take this one as well. This is quite an interesting one. Galatians 3. This jumps forward quite a bit. I'll turn back to it. Galatians 3. And let's begin up about verse 16. resurrected to the early New Testament church. So he is explaining and expounding Abraham and the original promises, which obviously were still in effect. Uh, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, that the true promise, the greatest promise, would come down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, we need to understand a point here about Ishmael, I think, in particular, in that he was the firstborn son, and therefore should have had double blessing above any others, according to Scripture. Now, does that always happen exactly that way? God shows that sometimes he changes things around for his own purposes, and he can even alter birth order, which he did with Israel. Reuben was the firstborn. Now, you would think, based on that scripture that says the firstborn is to receive double the inheritance, the Reuben should have it. 
But God, in his wisdom, foresaw that Reuben was unstable and had committed some sins that disqualified him from that. He was not able to take that rule. So it was not so much God just changing things around for his just because he wanted to, but any time there were uh, disqualifications for whatever reason, God then could change it to a way that would work better. Just as us, where he has called us to be in his kingdom, to be the bride of Christ, and when we were baptized, we entered into that agreement with him, but we can disqualify ourselves. Our names are written right now in the book of life. God will not take them out unless we disqualify ourselves and we force him to. He will never depart from us, as he said there in Romans. But we can depart from him and have our names taken out of the book of life. And he says that there will be a few who do that. And he even tells the churches, beware or be careful that no one take your crown. So God can change things, even though they may already be set up a certain way. And he tells us in Jeremiah 31 that he has changed it and he has made Ephraim his firstborn. So Reuben was deposed because of sin and disqualification, and Ephraim took that place. Now God also made some changes in terms of Ishmael the firstborn and Isaac. Oh no, Isaac was the firstborn. Excuse me. Uh, get this right. Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Hagar, Ishmael. Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael and Hagar. Ishmael was born, uh, wait a minute, what am I trying to say here? Of, of, of Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael was born first. No, Isaac was the firstborn son of Abraham. What, what am I mixing up here? Yeah. yeah, Ishmael, yeah, Hagar was there. Yeah, okay, I'll have somebody here to keep me straight. Uh, yeah, Sarah was having to wait and gave the handmaid, and, and uh, uh, Ishmael was born. So he was the first issue of Abraham in that sense, and therefore should have been given the promise of the firstborn, except she was not also the first wife. And God had something else in mind, and he knew the characteristics of Ishmael, and some of those would not be as they should be, perhaps, but in any case, he gave the greater blessing to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and the sons of Jacob. So, let's understand that because of conditions, God can change some things. And that's why we see them in the Bible as they are, not as we might have read the law and said, well, by the law, it should have been this way. How did it turn out that way? Because certain uh, changes were made. Now, we could take human beings as, a, as an overall example of that. God put Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them everything they could want, 
and he had the tree of life there, which he was eventually, undoubtedly, going to give them to partake of if they did what they were supposed to do. Now, he put it there with a positive attitude, and yet, almost immediately, they were led astray, they disqualified themselves, and the penalty of death came upon them. We've had the penalty of death for sin upon us ever since. Now, that wasn't God's original intent, was it? He intended that we follow his ways, do what he told us, and he would give us life. But we went another way. So, uh, there had to be some, uh, some changes. Christ had to come and remove the penalty of death for us, otherwise we would have all died. So the plan gets altered based upon people's uh, performance from time to time throughout Scripture. We need to understand that principle. So if everything does not go according to Reuben being the firstborn, it's because of a reason. Is there a yeah, the promise of Isaac's birth was before. was way before Hagar came on the scene in that sense. So, and that's a good point. In, in, the, in, in the sense of promise uh, that it would go through Sarah, God made that promise before Hagar ever conceived a child from Abraham. Good point. Uh, thank you. Uh, and I think it, it lends to what I'm trying to say here, that that child, you know, God does things and says, I speak of things before they happen as if they already were. So he had promised Abraham and Sarah a child uh, that would be the firstborn. Now, Hagar happened, but it wasn't God's doing necessarily. Uh, Sarah just says, well, this ain't happening. Why don't you take Hagar? So, and uh, that's the way that went. So that, uh, that is a contingency that I think is a very interesting observation. Now, as we go through this, uh, if, if some thoughts occur to you or, you know, or, or you have an additional point, uh, whether you do it even here or not, uh, I don't mind Terry adding that because I'm trying to get this explained and he added a very important point that's use, usable immediately. But whether that or later on you say, hey, what about this too? Is this an interesting thing? I can always interject it since we're not going into this and, uh, you know, organized sermon form in that sense. Because we want to get it all we, as much as we can. We want to get it right. And if I say something wrong or, or make a wrong point and you see something that proves it should be different, then we'll consider that too. But uh, back to Galatians here now. <clears throat> uh, and to seeds, verse 16, as of many, but as of one. It all came through Isaac. And to your seed, which is Christ. There, I think, is a very interesting statement. Christ would be born in the line of Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Judah. And was. So, the promise of Abraham's seed 
dwelling in the promised land extends to Christ. Therefore, I think it can be extrapolated fairly easily from this that Christ had to have been born in the promised land and had to have dwelt there, wherever that may be. Now, since I'm on the topic, pause to let that sink in a bit. What does that mean? That means that if the promised land was over there, Christ was born there and walked there. If that is not the promised land, the promised land is somewhere else, then, as the seed of Abraham, as stated here, your seed, which is Christ, and his seed was promised the promised land. Wherever that is, is where he walked. That is the true promised land. It is the true Jerusalem. It's the true Bethlehem. And so on and so forth. So if that is not it, and if this possibly is it, then Christ walked this area as his primary dwelling place. He may have traveled all over the world. I don't doubt that in the least, and Steve Collins points that out in his book quite a bit. The, the majority of what he said, though, was that Christ came here from there. Now, what if it's just reversed and Christ was here and traveled there? There's a big difference. We need to be where God told Abraham we would be here in the end time wherever that may be. But since we have pointed out Christ, let's go back to Acts 7. It comes to mind. I've got it written down somewhere in the future, but uh, let's see if I can find uh, the verses here. Acts 7. <clears throat> Stephen is giving this sermon to uh, the high priest and, and so on of the Jews, and he felt moved. God had given him faith and power, verse 8 of chapter 6, and he was questioned. And what did they question? They said he blasphemed God, he blasphemed Moses in verse 11 of chapter 6, and has false witnesses, false witnesses, excuse me, verse 14, for we have heard him say, that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. So they said, we are of Abraham our father, wherever they were. Where was that? And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So God brightened Stephen up in their views. And the high priest said, are these things so? So Stephen then said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, or Iran perhaps, and told him to get out and come to a country where I will show you. And he came out of Chaldea and Haran, and he removed him, end of verse 4, into this land where you now dwell. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the city of Jerusalem, 
to be in the original promised land. We have New Testament testimony to that effect. He goes on to say, And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession, and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spoke on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. That would be the captivity in Mitzrayim. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God, and after that shall he come forth and serve me in this place. Now, history has told us that they were in the land of Egypt over in northern Africa along what is called the Nile River today. But Stephen is saying that they would be in bondage in a strange land and they would go back to the promised land. Now, if this area were the original Jerusalem, the Garden of Eden, and so on, uh, Egypt had to be near enough to walk to, or Mitzrayim, because they walked. And there are several different stories in the Bible that show that they went down into Egypt by foot. So it wasn't by ship uh, at that time. And I think that it can be, a case can pretty easily be made that there have been uh, people movements across the continents a great deal throughout the ages, even since uh, before Noah, and ever after since, and that there have been great people movements. We've done some study in North America and found, in South America and Central America, and found that there is great evidence of Hamitic or black peoples uh, on, in North and South America. And it is clear from the table of nations that uh, the people of Ham are the black races. I think that can be pretty easily proved. And we have evidence, Olmec heads and various things, uh, DNA evidence, that they were here. None of that evidence can be found in the Middle East. Archaeologists have found no instance of that over there. And we'll get to some of that later on when we get into archaeology. Uh, so, it had to have been a land where they went in bondage within walking distance. I believe there was an Egypt here, uh, originally, uh, and probably south of here. There are stories about Egyptian culture and cities having been built in the Grand Canyon, and perhaps, and we know, further south, so it may have been a very large land, uh, which I won't get into all the detail on that, but they went into bondage, he said, and then they would come forth and serve me in this place, and he was standing in Jerusalem when he gave this sermon. And the, na the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of, of circumcision and so on. Uh, now, am I getting... They sold Joseph into it. Uh, I wanted to be sure I didn't miss something here. It talks about uh, 
their captivity down through these verses. And then Moses came along and uh, to deliver them. And he was to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. He saw them suffering and killed one and so on. Uh, verse 30, And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord in a flame of bush, tells the story, saying, I'm the God of your fathers, verse 32, and Moses trembled, and so on. He tells this whole story of Israel in the church in the wilderness, verse 38, Mount Sinai. Uh, people will bring up, well, Paul says in Galatians that uh, Mount Sinai was in Arabia. Well, if this were the birthplace of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this land, then the progeny of, of Ishmael, of, uh, of the Hamitic peoples, would have been here as well, since Canaan, Canaanites were in the promised land originally. So all those peoples would have had to have been here and moved to other parts of the world later, you see. So there was an Arabia, there was an Egypt, there was all of these peoples as they began to scatter out from here, even the Asians, scattered from the table or the cradle of nations to the rest of the world. And then I think after the flood, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, I think after the flood they spread from Mesopotamia back this direction. First it went from here to the world, and then after the flood, when it was reduced to eight, and he landed on probably the mountains of Ararat and Turkey, they went out and reestablished civil, civilization from that area over there. <coughs> and the Canaanites, or the Hamitic tribes or peoples, left first and came back to the land of promise, and it was theirs until God said, get out of Iran or Haran, and Mesopotamia, and go far away to a land that I will show you and find a city that you find, which was Jebus, or Jerusalem, as it was later called. So he's going through some of this history. Um, was there something else in here I wanted to bring out, or was that pretty much the story I guess it was really the, the main point I wanted to make was that Stephen was standing in the original promised land to Abraham when he gave this sermon in the true Jerusalem. So the promised land is where he lived. So if we find where the promised land is, then we'll know where Stephen gave this sermon from. And we'll know that Christ also, as Galatians 3 points out, was born and lived and walked there and preached there. So New, Test New Testament testimony that the promised land was the land of Christ and of Stephen. So it was not seeds, but seed. <laughs> Let's see. Well, let me just continue on through this. Uh, there may be a little bit, bit of back and forth, but there's some, some good points that are made. Uh, this is, according to the law, 
Let's see, did I? No, I haven't gone through this. No, let's wait on that. Let's go to Deuteronomy now. And about 19. <clears throat> this is some information that was put on the website by one of you. Deuteronomy 19. Uh, an important point to be made here. It says, remember he said, this land where you stand, and I didn't get to all those where he said to the north, south, east, and west of you, and go and, and see all this land that I will give you. Now, beyond that, there was an expansion. Here it says, And if the Eternal your God enlarge your borders, as he has sworn to your fathers, and give you all the land which he promised to give to your fathers. Now, we'll see in Joshua that the land that they went into when Moses died uh, was very limited in size. And Joshua goes through all the borders that he gave to each tribe. And it was fairly small. But here is an indication that not just that which Joshua divided up is the original promised land that Abraham could easily walk, but those coasts would be enlarged. It had to be much, much larger to accommodate hundreds of millions of people, okay? Now look at the Middle East in that, on that basis. A, you have the Arabs all over around what is called Israel, and Israel did not exist over there until 1948 when the nation of Israel was established and essentially taken away from the Arabs, and we've had contention over that ever since. <clears throat> but what kind of land is that? And how big is it? And was it ever enlarged? Was it ever made much larger? Now, if you go through and read in Joshua the size of the land that was given, it pretty well, pretty well fits within what that nation is today. Uh, it went on up into Lebanon and so on. It was bigger, actually, even than the, the land of Israel. Uh, take out the West Bank and various things. But it was pretty small. And God said, or predicted here, and there's another scripture that says he did enlarge the land. Uh, when was it ever done over there? It was even talked it would be to the river Euphrates. That's quite a way away from Israel to what we call the Euphrates today. But the kingdom of David, at its height and glory, never extended that far. Historically, you cannot find anything in the Bible, or in profane history as they call it, which shows that the land of Israel was ever extended beyond about where it is today, in spite of these promises. And there's no place there for hundreds of millions of people and if you did crowd them in, you know, where they had a foot or two square feet each to stand in, they would have nothing to eat. So it has never been expanded beyond what Joshua first gave them. 
even though there are indications that it would be expanded to a far greater time or far greater reach. So I think this is a very good uh, point. Uh, what they entered was not the full promised area that it would be enlarged. Now let's go on down. Uh, well, I'll just take this in the order in which you put it. We'll add some more to it. Let's go to Deuteronomy 8. This is a very key scripture. It's one of my very favorites in terms of the promised land. We're getting to it early here, and I think it's uh, perhaps a good time to go to it. Deuteronomy 8. All the commandments which I command you this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Eternal swore to your fathers. So he's addressing the promised land to Abraham, and you shall remember all the way which the Eternal led your God, or the Eternal, your God led you these forty years in the wilderness, to humble you, to prove you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now that's a very important factor right there, is it not? That they were to be in the promised land, they were to inherit it, but God would try them before that would happen. Now, he has called a New Testament Israel, comprised of all nations of peoples here in the end time, and he is trying it and testing it and putting it through a great deal before he would give the promised land. Now, maybe we were already in it in the overall sense of the land, but the promises were different, spiritually speaking, to the church. But where did the church begin? Did it begin over there with Israelites in the promised land? Or what we would, in the world, calls the promised land? No, it did not. And as I've said before, I don't I never did hear of anyone even being baptized over there unless they maybe had lots of money and, you know, I could see that maybe they said, well, okay, to the minister in Minneapolis, I want to go over to the Jordan River to be baptized. Uh, will you fly over with there with me and baptize me in the Jordan? Uh, maybe that happened. I don't know. Uh, just, you know, supposition. But God did not begin spiritual Israel within physical Israel, if that's physical Israel over there. He began it here. Why? We always thought, well, because this is the only land that could support it financially. This is the only place God could have started the end-time work because it was rich enough to do it. Well, if that was the original promised land, it should have been rich enough to do it because it would be a blessing to all lands, right? All nations, all peoples. Didn't happen there. Where then is Israel? Did, and he began spiritual Israel within Israel. We have that in New Testament history. Wherever Christ walked and wherever Stephen preached was the original promised land, and that is where Christ was born, 
And that is where he began the New Testament church through Christ and the apostles. That's where it started, in Israel. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he works in patterns. Would he then start it in a land of Arabs in the end time? God started the New Testament end-time church before there ever was a land of Israel over there, before the Jews even went there. He called Herbert Armstrong in 26-27, began the church as separate from Sardis in about 1933. Ambassador College was founded in 47, and the ministry began to expand and the church to expand before the Jews came from Poland and Czechoslovakia and Germany and wherever they came to even establish anything over there. The spiritual end-time work of Israel began when there was no Israel over there. I think that should tell us something about that land, and it might tell us something also about this land. <clears throat> and has he not been trying and proving the church and the spiritual temple we've been building, found it wanting, and spewed it out of his mouth, and given us prophecies that the former temple would be destroyed, the latter temple would be built within the memory time of old men, there in the story in Haggai. So, the former temple cannot have been that of Solomon, or that of Herod, or anything else other than that of Herbert Armstrong, because uh, he, and what he did, is still within the memory of some old men. And they're getting to be less and less of them as every month goes by. So the former temple had to have been under Herbert Armstrong. The latter temple has to have come within the lifetime of men that saw it. And the two witnesses have to come within that time as well. And the remnant church of Haggai and Zechariah have to occur within that time frame. And it has all occurred in this land. And we have been tried, found wanting, and started over. Now... Hopefully, we have changed enough and been tried enough that God has accounted us worthy to possibly be this very day, not only within the promised land, but maybe even in the very area of the original Zion, Jerusalem, and the Garden of God. That is, a, I think, a very strong possibility. And we had to be tried, tested, and so on, before God would let us do this. And we'll probably be tried some more. I have no doubt of that. Now let's see if the evidence supports that as we go on. But it's an interesting point here when he talks about the promised land sworn to Abraham. <clears throat> and he humbled you and suffered you to hunger, fed you with manna, spiritual food we could say today, which you knew not, neither did your fathers know. We came across knowledge of God's truth and spiritual food and manna uh, through Herbert Armstrong that we did not know. I, I was born into the Methodist Church. That's not bragging, that's just that's a fact. <laughs> it just happened, I'm sorry. I didn't know the words of God. They had to be shown to me. 
didn't know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the eternal does man live. That is not the message of Protestantism or of Catholicism or any other religion on earth except God's truth. That is a recurring theme here among us. Live by the whole Bible, by every word of God. Don't let any of his words drop to the ground, as Jeremiah said. We emphasize that continually, and I think for this very reason. Your raiment waxed not old upon you, neither did your foot swell these forty years. You shall consider in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the eternal your God chastens you. So, God being the same, if he has given us knowledge that is important here at the end for his church and for an example to the world to come, as many scriptures show, a people will be brought out to do that. They have to have the truth. Then, like Paul had to say to the New Testament church in Hebrews 12, God chastens the sons whom he loves. They'll go through trial, trouble, tribulation, and so on. So if we are poised to be a light to the world and a city set up on a hill for them to see, then we had to have gone through in some form or another the exact same thing that the Israelites originally did. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the eternal your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. So this is preparatory to God offering blessing and promise. Then he goes into it and describes. Now here's Bible definition of the promised land that they were about to enter. For the eternal your God brings you into a good land. A good land. Is that tiny nation of Israel a good land? Can it, by any definition, be called that? A productive, good land. I went there a few years ago, and I said, if this is the promised land, count me out. I don't want anything to do with it. That was before I understood a lot of what I understand today. Because it is desolate. It is barren. It has very, very little water. Uh, it's just not a good land to look at. So if we're going to find the promised land, we've got to find a good land. And let's, uh, let's then read what a good land includes. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. Lots of water. Does that describe Israel in the Middle East? They have one, I guess you could dignify it by calling it a river, what they call the Jordan River. Um, it comes from... Mount Hermon, about 80 miles north of Jerusalem, Rift Valley there, uh, through the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. Uh, I visited it on purpose because I had some of these things in mind and I wanted to see what was there. So just south of the Dead Sea, I went down to a little restaurant kind of a thing along the Jordan River. And uh, I took... 
I don't know, cheese and fruit or whatever I had with me down to have a picnic behind the, the little uh, business that was there. And uh, I remember that I thought, I wonder if I could get across the Jordan River without getting my feet wet. And lo and behold, I did. It's a creek. It's a branch. It's a rivulet. It is not a river. I'm sorry. I've seen rivers. <laughs> I've seen creeks. I've seen, uh, what do they call them? Well, I call them a creek down south. Streams, let's say. It, it, it. People call something a name when they find it. I've seen bodies of water this wide that people call rivers. I've seen in Alaska things as wide as this tent, the 40 feet, not the 20 feet, that they call creeks that you could not cross on foot, and you'd be lucky to get across alive most any way you attempted it. And it was a creek. So that, those creeks, rivers, streams are kind of thrown about uh, pretty loosely, depending on who named it for whatever reason. You know, Dead Horse Creek, whoever discovered that one probably saw a carcass in it, or Dead Man Creek, whatever. You know, we have those things all over this nation. But I, based on rivers I've seen, Mississippi, you know, uh, the Yukon, so on, the Jordan River is a very small creek by comparison. I walked across it by stepping on stones, and it wasn't at flood level, uh, but still and all, it, it wasn't very big. And I went way on down, nearly to the Dead Sea, <clears throat> and... There, it was not a, a up, up higher, it was falling fast, and it was a, it was a, a fast-flowing creek, okay? Then we got down to the other end where it was way below sea level and meandering back and forth, and I thought, well, is this where John the Baptist was baptizing people? And I decided I'd get in it, and it was a, a murky, slow-moving thing, and uh, I think about waist-deep, and you could easily wade across it, even there. That's the biggest thing they got going, was the point I was headed to. Uh, they've got River Jabbok, and, you know, little, they got some little streams, even far, far smaller even than the, than the Jordan, which don't even run year-round, and they call those rivers and creeks. I do not see a description there that by any means fits Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 8. You can go to Europe and find mighty rivers and creeks all over the place in a verdant land. You can come to America and you have water everywhere. Not, well, not literally everywhere, but, you know, start on the east. St. Lawrence Seaway, Hudson River, Great Lakes, Ohio River, Tennessee River, you know, just start naming them. Susquehanna River, French Broad River, just dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of them. They're navigable. Tennessee River, you know, it just goes on and on. Mississippi River, uh, Missouri River that comes into it from the west, the Platte River, the Kansas River, just on and on and on. 
water everywhere in the east. Uh, Florida is covered with water almost. Good water for the most part. And even in the west, you got the Missouri River, the Snake River, the Columbia River, which is a mighty river up in the northwest, the Colorado River, uh, the Rio Grande, you know, they, they come out of the mountains right and left, watering even the drylands. Even the deserts of America have mighty rivers in them, the Columbia and the Rio Grande and the, the Colorado, to name a few. They're not as many as there are back east, but uh, look at our breadbasket. I mean, if you're from the Rockies east, just incredible fields of grain and, and, and uh, agriculture unlimited, woods and forests and water. Now there is a good land that has that fits the description of verse 7. But I don't think the, the, the wildest fool on earth would call that nation of Israel over there a land of brooks and fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. That last phrase is something I've never hit on before. I don't, I've never seen springs of any sort or season or otherwise over in Israel. But our dairy industry and our cheese-making uh, factories and so forth built up in East Coast and around Wisconsin uh, built around those uh, caves and areas where there were eastern wells and spring water to keep the milk and everything cold. Yeah, Gordon's making a point here that up in Wisconsin that it's springs everywhere that the dairy farms are around that produce the cheese and the, the milk and so on. May Apple, I mean, Minnesota is known as a land of 10,000 lakes, and you fly over it and you just see them glistening everywhere. Rivers and lakes and springs, and, you know, it's just North Dakota even. Uh, some pretty good-sized rivers, and you drive through there and waving fields of grain everywhere from, from the north to the south. Charles, you had a comment? The aquifers we have here are unlimited. Yeah the, the, yeah, the aquifers under this land. Uh, are used for a great deal of irrigation. The Ogallala uh, Reservoir expands under several states, an underground lake from which come springs and thus wells, and you can, you can pump out of them. They can't do that over there. They can't even drill and find much water. In fact, I can show you some information, and probably will later on, where they're digging uh, angled wells underneath the West Bank now to try to find enough water to even support the population that's there now, a small population by comparison. They simply don't have the water over there. It's not there. We have, we're selling Great Lakes water to the Chinese already. Look at Alaska. Man, there's water nearly anywhere you step. Glaciers and mighty rivers and incredible lakes. Uh, Canada the same way. Part of this continent and Israel living there, not just America. Canada has water galore. There's more water uh, that is usable water in this country because you have the farmland to go with it. Now, there's some mighty rivers in South America, the Amazon and so on, but uh, <laughs> it's in jungle and they can't produce very much under the present circumstance, although there are some mighty cities under those jungles 
come to pass. And we'll get to that a little later on. I'm spending a little time here uh, because I think it's important not to just sort of read over this, but to stop and think about what it's saying. It's not saying there'll be two springs in the land, four creeks, and, and a, a muddy little river that we'll call a river, and a dead sea that has nothing in it. We got that too. Great Salt Lake makes the Dead Sea look like a puddle. <clears throat> certainly did when it spread all the way to Nevada. Lots of water. Oregon and Washington. Oh, my, the rivers and lakes and so on through those two states and those.